Hi, and welcome to today's episode of Phil Fisher's Tech and Digital Podcast, where we tell you all you need to know about European and UK digital regulation. My name is Laura Burton, and I will be your host. I am a partner at European law firm Field Fisher, based in our Palo Alto office, from where we advise businesses who want to sell, expand or move into Europe. I welcome today my colleague Rob Fett, who is based in our London office and who is a data privacy expert. Rob particularly enjoys complex technological processing such as AI, blockchain and for today, the dark web. Hi, Rob. Hi, Laura. Thank you very much for joining us today. And I know that a lot of people are really curious about the dark web. And so for listeners who are unfamiliar with what it actually means, can you tell us a bit more about it? Sure. So in essence, the dark web is a hidden part of the web, although as we'll kind of maybe come on to it, it's not as hidden as you may think. Um, And there's a really good analogy to describe the dark web, and that's an iceberg. So the internet that we normally browse is what we call the surface web. And that represents actually only about 4% of the internet. So that's the internet that you see when you browse Wikipedia, uh, you watch videos um, on YouTube, or you read the news. And then you have what we call the deep web. So that's the biggest chunk of the iceberg. That's just below the water surface, uh, the bit you can see when you have your snorkel on. And that (laughs) represents a colossal 90% of the dark web. Um, but it's really easy to access. That's a bit, um, you know, when you access your email account, um, you view your films on Netflix. Um, you know, it's just about entering your password to get onto a kind of slightly hidden layer of the internet. Okay. And then we've got the then we've got the dark web. So that's what you find at the deep bottom of the ocean, and that represents six uh, percent of the internet. So actually, more than the internet that we normally browse. Um, and that's the really interesting part we're going to talk about today. So what can we find on the dark web? Is it all like, you know, drugs, sex and rock and roll? And, you know, we all hear about the shady stuff happening there. But is it true? Um, Well, there are certainly drugs on there. Um, You may, if you take fancy, um, you know, to find somebody to murder somebody for you. Um, But, you know, we're (laughs) we're privacy folk, right? So all we care about really is the personal data that gets sold on there. Um, Often that's an exchange for your your cryptocurrencies, such as Bitcoin. Um, And what you might find for sale are things like credit cards or people's passwords. Um, You may also find um, data that people have uploaded. So, for example, Julian Assange, uh, he may upload um, some data about a company and the company doesn't want that data on there. Um, So it's a really hidden part of the Internet. um, And there's a lot of shady stuff happening but it's actually not that hard to access. Hmm. Okay, so I could just, me or the average employee really, could just um, access it and have a little browse and then upload whatever I want? Um, well, to be honest, probably your five-year-olds could um, get onto the dark web. Um, it's a little bit worrying. Um, all, you need is a special, all you need is a special browser um, and to type in the address that you want to go to. So not much different um, from the normal web. Uh, but you do need a special browser. Uh, one of the most popular is called the Onion Router, or T-O-R, Tor um, for short. And the most difficult challenge actually with the dark web is finding out um, the address of where you want to go to on the dark web. Um, they are a little bit more hidden, um, but you can often find some listings on uh, the surface web for these websites. Um, mm-hmm. 
Now, I can hear the question you have in your mind, Laura. Um, what do onions have to do with anything? Um, well, without being too technical, basically what happens on the dark web is when, when you're browsing the dark web, um, your information gets passed um, through the Tor network. And that's basically um, an encrypted network, layers upon layers upon layers of encryption. Hence, it's like the layers of an onion. Um, mm. And along with that encryption, the information gets bounced all over the internet um, to what we call nodes. Um, so they are basically computer servers um, all over the world. And it provides basically a greater level of anonymity um, to the service and the deep webs that we normally use. So that makes it really good for criminals, right? Because they can, oh. um, you know, basically try to stay hidden um, and it'd be more difficult for law enforcement to track them down. So it's quite worrying, right? If I'm a company with lots of employee and customer data, any of my employees might just upload everything on the dark web to sell it or if they're annoyed with me to cause embarrassment. There have been quite a few examples recently, um, you know, WikiLeaks and lots of millions of hacked accounts. And people always wonder, you know, how do you actually, let's say you hack an account, what do you do with it afterwards? Yeah, so I, I think companies um, should be worried about the dark web, um, but they can take steps um, to reduce that risk, right? So the first thing um, companies can do is to, to protect themselves, um, is to take, you know, what we call into the GDPR, there's, there's technical and organizational security measures. Um, mm -hmm. So that's, you know, what, what does that mean in practice, right? That means, um, you know, trying to detect and, and prevent employees from accessing the dark web, um, trying to prevent them from having access to data that they don't need for their normal day-to-day -day activities in their workplace. Um, and it also means you know, preventing people from um, sending data outside of your organization if they don't need to. Um, then another aspect of it is, you know, detecting vulnerabilities in your system from external threats. Um, so that means things like, you know, carrying out regular penetration testing on your systems. Of course, you can get um, external security consultants in to assist you with that. And then you have um, your organizational measures. So that's things like giving training to your employees so that they're aware of threats. Obviously, things like phishing attacks, we're seeing a lot of those at the moment. Um, with the you know, people working from home and um, you know, social engineering as well. That, that typically means you know, calling people up, uh, pretending to be a, you know, somebody that they know or from an organization they think um, they should be talking to. Uh, that, that bad person you know, collects data about them and then uses that to somehow gain access um, to their accounts. Okay, so it seems that a lot of the standard data hygiene and security hygiene um, that companies should be carrying out regularly would be helpful. Um, but what should companies do if they find data out their data on the dark web? I mean, should they actually be monitoring if they know that there's a, you know, um, a difficult employees who's threatened them to uh, upload some data to be a whistleblower? What should companies do? Um, so I think you know, active monitoring of the dark web, you know, is one thing that you can do. Um, and of course, there are companies that can help you with that and performing those active monitoring uh, services. Um, but the problem really is, even if you find that data on the dark web, um, it's not that easy to take it down. Uh, that's because of, you know, the anonymity and the, the decentralized nature of, of the dark web. But let's say you do find some usernames and passwords of your customers. Is that helpful? Well, 
it can be because it potentially alerts you to some sort of vulnerability in your systems, right? Because the data has ended mm -hmm. up somewhere, you know, there must have been a problem. Um, so you can do something about that. It also then allows you to take some steps to protect your customers uh, by fixing that vulnerability and alerting them so that they can take steps at their end. Uh, for example, um, you can enforce your customers to change their login credentials. And mm -hmm. taking these sort of steps, it, it should all be part of a well thought through and tested incident response plan. And you should be regularly, regularly reviewing um, this plan, uh, particularly in light of uh, people working from home now. That's really important because people are going to be exposed to uh, different kinds of threats um, in their home environment that they're not exposed to in the work environment where companies have a bit more control over how uh, how their employees view data. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And it's true, there's been a tremendous change in work conditions and therefore people tend to relax a bit more at home and maybe uh, not be as uh, data security focused as they might be in the workplace. So now let's say that a company doesn't get it right and um, whether it's their fault or not, but data from employees or customers is made available on the dark web. Um, so what happens? That imposes a liability on the organization? Like, are they liable for fines under data protection legislation, claims from compensation, um, cost of investigation and, and investigating and remedying the problem, um, credit monitoring? Um, th there's quite a lot of consequences for the businesses. So, and even if I go to the length mentioned earlier, that's not always going to solve the problem, right? So I guess you could delegate one IT employee to, to surf on the dark web or have an external company. But isn't there always a risk that even if I do everything right, I train my employees and put security measures in place, it still is possible that a rogue employee who does have a genuine need to be able to access certain information for their role, I will then abuse their position. And say, you know, maybe because they have a grievance against the company, maybe because they're paid for it. But what happens there? Does the company have any liability? So actually, there's been a really recent development on that, Laura. Um, so just last week, the UK's Supreme Court gave a judgment. Um, and this was uh, about the extent to which an employer can be vicariously liable for the acts of a rogue employee. So this was a case involving the British supermarket Morrison's and one of its employees, uh, a man named Mr. Skelton. Now, Mr. Skelton was an internal auditor of Morrison's and he had genuine access to payroll data of uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of Morrison employees. Now, Mr. Skelton was involved in some kind of disciplinary action. He wasn't very happy with the company. Um, so he, as an actor of of revenge, he used uh, the Tor network to upload data of around 100,000 employees to a file sharing network. Obviously, mm -hmm. he shouldn't have done that. But the key issue in this case, um, which the Supreme Court had to determine, was whether Morrison's was vicariously liable for his actions. And the court found um, in this case that the company was not vicariously liable. But it used to be, right? So it's just been reversed because I remember it made quite a lot of noise at the time and everyone was very scared about it, right? The Morrison case of, you know, Morrison having not done anything wrong, being still held vicariously liable. So the key thing to point out um, with this case is that it doesn't change the general rule that employers can be vicariously liable for their employees' acts. 
uh, whether that's uh, related to a data breach or, or some other tortious act. Um, but mm -hmm. because Mr. Skelton was not acting in his capacity as an employee when he leaked data, instead he was um, carrying out an activity completely of his own accord to harm Morrison's. Um, and that's why Morrison's was not vicariously liable. That makes sense. So does that mean that employers don't need to worry? Are they actually off the hook? So unfortunately not. Um, although this judgment is really welcome and it, it does lay a path for employers uh, not to be vicariously liable in some scenarios, employers can still be vicariously liable where employees commit acts in their capacity as an employee. So as an example, an employee could be sending data to another party as part of a legitimate and authorised part of their role. But then as a result, maybe of not following the correct procedure or some other kind of security uh, error on their part, um, the data gets sent to an unintended party. So in that scenario, uh, there would still potentially be vicariously li vicarious liability um, for the employer. And of course, it, mm -hmm. you know, it also goes without saying that employees can also be directly liable for breaches uh, under the GDPR uh, as a result of inadequate security measures. Okay, so practical issues which employers should consider then would be uh, one, tightening employee access to data, two, assessing risks posed by insider employee, particularly if they are known to be disgruntled employees, such as Mr. Skelton in the Morrison case. And that might mean that IT and human resources need to have a closer relationship than they do so far. Uh, as and when additional threats materialize and um, maybe putting data monitoring tools in place for employees? Um, that's right. Um, and I would add, of course, that when you're putting in place those kind of monitoring tools to log employee data and how they're using your company systems, it's really important to do this in a way which is compatible with data protection laws. So in the particularly for US companies, um, they will in, in the past have taken an approach perhaps of you know that there being no right to privacy where an employee's work computers and work email are concerned. But they're mm -hmm. going to have to start to take quite a different approach or even multiple approaches in Europe. So for example, while countries in, such as the UK and the Netherlands take quite a proportionate approach, um, so that's basically balancing the risk to the company and the risk to employees and, and trying to find um, a good balance. There are some jurisdictions in Europe, such as Germany and Spain, who are much more restrictive and it can actually make it very difficult to then use uh, that monitoring data, for example, in an employee tribunal case. Wow, a bit scary. Um, so I guess to sum it up, the dark web is a risk to company and can act as a tool for bad actors, whether they're employees or, or not, uh, selling data and companies should really be taking steps to protect against these risks. Yes, and I would add, though, that the dark web is not just a bad place. It, it can have some positive impacts. So there are some companies or organizations who you have a strong motivation for promoting free speech across the globe. For example, there are some countries where people don't have free access to the internet. And actually, by mm. a company setting up a site on the dark web, that can give users access to your company, to your site, um, to promote free speech, to find information that they otherwise wouldn't be able to find. And that extra layer of anonymity that dark web provides uh, really can provide a really good um, 
brand image for companies you're know, looking to promote themselves on the dark web. I like your ending, putting a positive spin uh, in relation to free speech versus the dangers of business being exposed on the dark web. Um, so thanks again, Rob, for taking us through this um, podcast on the dark web. It's been really, really interesting. Thanks, Laura. And that's it for this episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. And if you have, please do subscribe through the usual channels to receive our latest podcast. Thank you for listening.